Hey guys, Andy here. Just before we start this week's show, we have an exciting announcement to make, which is that we are returning to the stage. We have a show. It's a live show booked in, and it's going to be at the London Podcast Festival later this month. It's going to be on the 27th of September at King's Place, which is in London. It's going to be at 7pm, and it is going to be so much fun. But Andy, I don't live in London and or I don't want to go to a gig because I'm a bit worried about leaving the house at the moment. Can I see the show? Of course you can, James, because not only is it being done very carefully with only a very limited number of tickets being sold, so it's all socially distanced, you can also get streaming tickets. So you can go online and at that time you can watch us make fools of ourselves with stupid facts on stage. (laughs) So how do I get these tickets, Andrew? James, all you have to do is go to qi.com slash fish events. And I'll say that again, qi.com slash fish events. And when I say events, I mean event because it is the only thing in our diaries. So (laughs) for your possibly last ever chance to see us on a stage, just go there. No, we'll be back on tour next year. Oh, I hope so. (laughs) Uh, But Andrew, what is going to happen next? Uh, The show is going to happen next. Oh, I better do that. Yeah. On with the show. On with the podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from four undisclosed locations in the UK. My name is Dan Schreiber. I am sitting here with James Harkin, Andrew Hunter-Murray and Anna Chazinski. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with you. Anna. My fact this week is that by complete coincidence, the center of North America is called center. <laughs> mad. It's amazing. What? Yeah. It's mad. This is so a lot of people weirdly put quite a lot of effort into working out the geographic center of various places. And this is the latest research on the center of the whole of North America. So you've got and it's it's mainland North America. So uh, not including the islands. And this research was done by a University of Buffalo geologist called Peter Rogerson. And he worked out this mathematical way of defining the center of a place, which has never been used before. And essentially, he ran his sums, ran his algorithms. And the place that was thrown up was a place called Center in North Dakota. <laughs> it's so <laughs> by weird. total yeah. chance. It's and insane. It's, it, it's tiny, isn't it? It's 1.24 kilometers square. Yeah. So it's not even like it's a big place that had a no. big chance of being it. No, it is quite weird because there's no way of actually working out the middle of somewhere. There's no universally agreed way. So his mathematical definition is that the center's location minimizes the sum of squared distances to all other points in a region. So if you want to work out the middle of something, there you go. That's how you do it. But the way he changed it is that he realized the way we've worked out the middle of places before hasn't accounted for the curvature of the earth. And so that actually affects distances, whereabouts on the curvature of the earth you are. So he used this special 3D projection and look, I wonder how many different methods he came up with before it yielded some like <laughs> Well, he reckons that his isn't exactly perfect because he hasn't taken into account that the planet is a slight ellipsoid so that it's yeah. not a perfect ball. So oh. maybe when he was a few he might find Bad out that science. the yeah, like, yeah. Oh, See, this is where they're going to get shot in the foot that they're only 1.24 kilometres. If they were a bit bigger, they might still be the centre, but this, this is a very small fraction well, maybe there'll be no a massive in. population boom of people flooding to the area, given <laughs> this exciting news. <laughs> I love true. it, though. I love I love the competition between different centres, because there is so much skullduggery going on. So um, you, I'm sure you guys will found the place uh, that was rugby. Rugby, mm. in North, also in North Dakota, so quite near mm. centre, probably. Um, they announced that they were the centre of North America in 1931, and... They put up a stone monument and they, they used to hold a, they might even still hold a Miss Geographic Centre beauty pageant every year. Yeah. And every September they have a Geographic Centre Day, which features a mechanical bull and a basketball tournament for reasons that are not immediately plain. I think because they're both quite American things that Americans <laughs> like to do, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It'd be like, weird if they had a paella making competition <laughs> and a boomerang throwing competition. <laughs> so this place rugby it could be that when they take into account the fact that the earth is shaped a little bit like a rugby ball that rugby then becomes the center of america 
Wouldn't, wouldn't that, that be, be nice? nice? Yeah. I'd yeah. love that. Fingers crossed. Calling on mathematicians to force <laughs> that to be true. So there's another place which is a in North Dakota that also claimed to be the centre of North America called Robinson. And it was the mayor who declared that it was the centre and specifically a bar that he owns uh, called Hanson's Bar was the absolute centre. <laughs> um, and quite nicely, for he, he had this idea when he was drinking with his buddies in the bar and his name is Bill Bender, which is a perfect uh, going on a bender drinking. It's yeah. a nice little Paying coincidence the bill. there. Yes. Yeah, but um, so both of these two towns, Rugby and Robinson, are furious that uh, it's been calculated that centre is in fact the centre. Yeah, although you've got to be suspicious of the guy who was randomly drinking with his mates in a bar and thought, let's try and work out where the centre of North America is, and it happened to be the bar they were it's, drinking it's in. It's his bar. It's, it's, this is a complete con designed to get people to build on this <laughs> bar. I'm so, yeah. No, it's infuriating because there was a big New York Times piece about it, and the New York Times, because they're very diligent fact-checkers, they said, how did you calculate that you are the exact centre of North America? And his, his words were, it was trial and error. I can't give you an exact formula... And then he said it was barroom science that they'd used. Um, and then when rugby got involved, because Bill Bender registered his bar as the legal owner of the phrase geographical centre of North America, because uh, rugby had let it lapse in 2009. Foolishly, they took their eyes off the ball and Bill Bender grabbed it. So when rugby sent a legal letter to him, he offered to fight the mayor of rugby. <laughs> I don't think... He's not reputable enough to own the centre of North America, in my opinion. I think he sounds like a wily businessman, Andy. And you're jealous that you haven't come up with any such idea to sell your various shows and products over the years. By the way, I looked on Wikipedia of places in America called Centre, and there were over 15 actual towns, and then there's places where no one lives that are called Centre, but roughly 15 places that are all called Centre, all for the exact same reason that they claim to be the centre of Alabama or mm. wherever it is that they are, all except one, which is Centre in Georgia, which was actually named after a man called Mr. Centre. That's the only one. <laughs> no way. It used to be that in America you would put your kind of county hall in exactly the middle of your county because um, they thought it was like more accessible. Like, for instance, if the parliament in the UK is in London, obviously the people in Scotland have to travel a long way to get there. But if it was exactly oh, yeah. in the middle of the country, the idea is it's more accessible for more people. Yeah, I think that that is sort of the only reason to work out where a centre is, isn't it? To work out where to put your seat of government and then to satisfy weird facts lovers. <laughs> Um, there is a problem with being in the centre of America, someone found out. There's this massive problem that was generated uh, for someone who lives quite near the centre of the US, in fact. And this is to do with a company called MaxMind. Have you read about this story, no. about IP addresses? Okay, so no. it's so weird. Basically, uh, MaxMind is this company who about sort of just over 10 years ago started calculating the location of loads of IP addresses. So, you know, with your computer, you've got an IP mm. address. MaxMind figured out whereabouts they all were geographically, and then it could sell that information to companies like Google and Facebook and lots of other people. But often, when you're trying to work out where an IP address is, you can't get it exact. And sometimes it'll just say, this is somewhere in America or mm. somewhere mm. in the US. And so for all of those, MaxMind just default assumed that they were in the middle. So they got the coordinates of roughly the middle of America and said, OK, all the IP addresses that we can't quite place, they just are here. And it turns out here is a rural farmhouse belonging to someone called Joyce Taylor, who now has 600 million IP addresses registered <laughs> to her farmhouse. And it's so, it's a complete disaster because basically if there's a troll online or if there's someone who's hacked your company or if there's uh, someone doing criminal activity online and the police are tracking them down, they chase up their IP address and they constantly find it's at Joyce Taylor's farmhouse. And she's just inundated with kind of abuse and people writing her threatening letters and had no idea why. For about eight years, she was just like, why am I being... Oh, no. What's happening to me? Wow. We Until this journalist tracked her down. Are we definitely discounting the fact that Joyce is like a massive cyber criminal is that <laughs> she's she's a criminal mastermind an 82 year old criminal mastermind it's possible that's it's possible. funny oh poor joyce um they used to work out in the middle of america by doing a cardboard cutout of the whole country and then balancing it on their finger and wherever it balanced <laughs> so cool. that's where the center was 
Isn't that amazing? It, it seems like is it quite a good method? Yeah, they got this. They got it accurate to within twenty miles of the current center. What did they do? I know that the they use the exact same method for countries that have islands that sit around mm. because they're obviously apart. Do they include when they do the cardboard cutout? Do they sort of just slam that onto the end, or do they include the ocean bit? That's difficult, isn't it? Because you couldn't just slam it onto the side because if it's further away from the pivot, it's going to be weighing more. But then you can't attach it because then the thing you've attached it with weighs something. So yeah. that actually sounds like it might be a slight flaw in the system. That's true. The UK, I looked up the Ordnance Survey website and found out how they calculate the centre. And they actually said, on, they say on their website now, we calculate the centre of Great Britain using the gravitational method. So that is the one you're talking about. That oh, is yeah. the cardboard cutout. Wow. That's really? still in use, effectively, yeah. Do they probably Ooh. do like a simulation of a cardboard cutout using a massive um, supercomputer? They or... don't go into detail, actually, which <laughs> makes me think it's probably a cardboard cutout. <laughs> <laughs> where is the centre of the UK? It's in Lancashire, isn't it? Isn't yeah, it? it is. It's a it's place near, near the, the forest of Boland. Oh, yeah. I think there's, there's one claim that it's a place called Meriden. Yeah, uh, Meriden, that's... I think, is the centre of England because I've been. Oh, to it's Meriden. the centre of England. Yeah. Yes, um, yeah. Forest of Boland, where my grandfather, I think, was born, um, nice. is just in north. No, it's central Lancashire, I think. Right, but there is in in the Meriden uh, one, there is a monument that stands there. It's been there for five hundred years. You can go and visit it. I um, have done them. Of course, have you? No way. Of course, I have. I was once within twenty miles of the centre of the UK with my long-suffering wife and said, "Oh, look, I've just noticed there's somewhere I could take a photo," and we we drove that extra bit. Wow, that's really funny. God, um, James, so cool. have you been to the centre of the EU? Uh, I don't know. Where is it? Oh yeah, is it, well, come on, the odds are astronomical that you. Um, but basically, there's a real problem with calculating the oh, geographical no. centre of the EU, which is that the membership of the EU it changes every few years. So it used to be in a particular place, then it changed in 1986 when Spain and Portugal joined. Then in 1990, Germany was reunited, and that mm. shifted it a bit. And so it keeps moving. It's just moved again due to Brexit. And, and I also, think, what did you do before yeah. Brexit? What did you do with the United Kingdom? Do you just sellotape it onto France, or do you include the bit in between? Mm -hmm. Right. I can't remember. And in <laughs> fact, I suspect I never bothered to find out. Um, <laughs> so where is the centre then? Where is the current one? Do you know? Actually, this, I'm now looking at the one for Europe, which I think might be slightly different mm. to the EU. But the one for Europe uh, is in Lithuania, and it's got five reviews on TripAdvisor. And really? They're gets... all from James saying, on my fifth <laughs> visit, my wife was really pissed off. <laughs> sort of ruined the whole experience. Um, the centre of the EU, the new centre, is going to be, or is now, a field in Gadheim in Germany, which has, they've already erected a red and white pole there and various flags flying <laughs> all around it. And in fact, they got really impatient. There was an interview with, I think, the mayor of a nearby area saying because Britain took so long to figure out when it was leaving the EU and they're just desperate to announce themselves as the new middle, they eventually erected a sign saying future centre of the EU <laughs> just to prepare people so it wasn't too much of a shock. I was just thinking, right, bear with me. <laughs> if you... um. If you wanted to influence um, an election, say a Brexit election, then you might do a lot of online work. So you might send a load of fake news and fake adverts and stuff like that. And what would you need? You would need to find a lot of IP addresses to send all these things. And mm -hmm. who would have all those IP addresses? Someone <laughs> in the centre of Europe. And who has a motivation to want Brexit? The people who are in the centre of Europe. So you're saying it's the farmers of Gadheim who have clubbed together and swung the election for Brexit. Exactly what I'm saying. It's possible. That's it's a really possible. good... That would be a great crime thriller. I don't know if it would. I don't know if that's getting made. They'll get the tourist boost, though. That's what they count on. They think they'll be flooded. But the warning comes from the previous centre that's now been deposed, which was somewhere else called Festengrund, where the local baker there said, we thought Chinese buses would be coming there every week when we became the centre, but it didn't really turn out that way. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, James, have you and Polina been to the centre of the world? Um, where is it? Is it in oh. Russia? It's in Ohio. Oh, no, I've never been to Ohio. <laughs> in America. What's that, Dan? 
Center of the World. It was set up by a sort of eccentric businessman called Randall Wilmot in 1845. It's when he first moved to this area. And he set up a business there. He, set, he settled there. Some houses were built. And he thought to get the attraction of people and give it a name, he called it the center of the world, uh, which I believe it's still called till this day. to this day. And um, he, he just seems like a really fun character. He, before doing that, lived in New York, where he had an establishment called the beginning of the world. So when he left the beginning of the world, he went to the center of the world and he was there for a very long time. And then eventually business dried up and he moved 13 miles away to Cortland in Ohio, uh, where he set up a grocery store called the end of the world. And that was the last thing, major thing that he did. So it's a guy who had in three places, the beginning, center, and end of the world. So, good. so he's cool saying guy. that the end of the world is only 13 miles from the middle of the world. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't know if those mathematical calculations are rigorous <laughs> as previous ones. This guy sounds like a distant ancestor of Bill Bender, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what the, uh, the roundest country on the planet is? The roundest country oh, on the planet. I do know that. Is it Ivory Coast or something? No, I don't think you do know. Oh, it's somewhere no, wait. Is it somewhere say, in Africa? Is it not Cote d'Ivoire? No, it's Sierra somewhere in Africa. Oh, so close. Ah, you were so close. Yeah. Is it? So there are various different ways of working it out. You can define rectangularity as well, which is how much of a country overlaps with a rectangle of the same area. And you might be able to get this one, the most rectangular country on the planet. Uh, it's very rectangular. That's your clue. <laughs> <laughs> is it somewhere like it's, Libya? Oh, oh, you're so close. Uh, in that uh, case, Egypt. Yes, Egypt. Egypt. <laughs> oh, with the pyramids. That's amazing. Uh, what? Yeah. Well, no, it's just amazing that the sort of national shape that we know it is the actual shape of the country. Well, no, because the pyramids are more triangular than square, aren't they? Yes. Dan, what, have you seen only what? half-built pyramids where they have <laughs> shipped I... off the sides? You're yet? talking about ziggurats. Sorry, no, I, I thought we said... I thought we said Oh, what did you say? Rectangular. You said rectangular. I did. Cool. <laughs> nice. It just sounds very man. similar to triangle, doesn't it? It does. They're it very similar. Does. They end the same, don't yeah. they? <laughs> it's amazing those primary school kids managed to be out of this at all. <laughs> so, any chance the most triangular country is Egypt? <laughs> you got I'll look the... into it. I'll get back to you guys. Okay, it's time for fact number two, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that the modern door handle was invented by Ludwig Wittgenstein. <laughs> now, <laughs> this is... my favourite fact ever. I love it. That's incredible. <laughs> I mean, he was quite recent. Yeah. He was more recent than doors, Yeah, I thought. Oh, no, one, no one could get through doors until he gave a lug. They Amazing. Were just, they were just walls. Wow. Just empty houses. But when you say the modern door handle... This yeah. is what fascinates me, because it's as though there was a kind of archaic, bad door handle, and then he fixed it. Well, that's kind of what happened. So, Wittgenstein, yeah. philosopher, mid-20th century, mm. uh, very well-renowned, pupil of Bertrand Russell, and kind of influenced pretty much everyone who came after him, but also inventor of door handles, because <laughs> I read this in a in an article about door handles in Apollo Art Magazine. And uh, Wittgenstein was working as a school teacher and he'd hit one of the kids because they'd upset him. Um, and he'd had to kind of be taken out of the school and be suspended and stuff like that. I think he got fired, actually. And so he kind of was sat around feeling sorry for himself, didn't have anything to do, but he came from an extremely rich family and his sister Gretel decided to distract him from everything by commissioning him to design the interior of a new house that she'd bought. And he was extremely distracted by this because it took him a year to design the door handle alone. It took him two mm. years to design the radiators. But what he came up with was a really modern kind of, I want to say like minimalistic kind of design of a house and the door handle which he invented was kind of short coming out of the door and then a long straight bit with a little kink in it. If that's, mm. it's not a great explanation, but that's basically... No, no, yeah, yeah. If you look that's at it. a door handle now, most of them will be that kind of design. And until then, it was more kind of knobs or it was straight handles or stuff like that. So all future door handles were kind of influenced by this one that was invented by Wittgenstein. <laughs> 
in much the same way as all future philosophical thought (laughs) was influenced by him too. I wonder how much that was seen. You know, like he probably was asked to do a lot of talks in the way that we have like TED Talks now. And he'd always email back or write back at the time going, do you want the philosophical chat or the uh, door handle lecture? I've got both ready. I think it was probably he'd be giving a talk and there'd be questions and answers at the end and everyone only wanted to ask about the door handle. I bet every time he'd be like, come on, guys, talk to me about my philosophies. Um, It sounds really different to the house he grew up in. So Mm. as James said, it's a very minimalist place, this uh, place in Vienna. But the house he grew up in was, he grew up in a palace. This was how wealthy his family were. Mm. So the forecourt had sculptures in it by uh, Rodin and there was someone who was employed in a house for the sole purpose of bowing to visitors. <laughs> That's what I read, sole purpose. Wow. I know. Wow. It had seven pianos, this house. Um, it had an organ built in. It had a fountain inside it. Wow. They did have, I think they had the largest private fortune in Europe, possibly, wow. didn't they, the Wittgensteins? Wow. Really? They were loaded. Yeah, So, he, but he was really trying to simplify when he designed this new house, you know, against the kind of incredibly opulent Viennese yeah. I never thought yeah. of it that way about his previous house because when he moved to Trinity College um, after he became a famous philosopher, his rooms were completely devoid of furniture. He had no furniture in them. And when he left Cambridge, he became an assistant gardener at an Austrian monastery and slept <laughs> in a potting shed. So maybe he was just trying to escape from that opulence. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he gave all his money away as well, didn't he? He he inherited a lot and he just gave it to his brothers and sister. And should have given it to the kid he was hitting at school, which got him sacked from the job. (laughs) (laughs) Well, to be honest, later on when he kind of had a bit of severe introspection, Um, after the war, he kind of went to live in Norway and he did a lot of confessions. So anything that happened to him previously in life, which he felt bad about, he went to those people and apologised for those things. And he apologised to to this, um, at least to one of the children whose ears he had pulled. Did he? Yeah, uh, it was she was He he was the original, the original My Name is Earl. Is that what that is? Uh, Oh, yeah. Yeah, you guys remember My Name is Earl, right? No, yeah. Is that TV series about that guy who committed loads of crimes and then spent his life going back apologising to them? Well, it sounds like that's exactly what Wittgenstein did. <laughs> I think it's based yeah. on this. It sounds like my name is Ludwig Wittgenstein. <laughs> <laughs> and my father is an earl. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the reasons he became a teacher was that he essentially gave up on philosophy, didn't he? He wrote, in, he wrote this thing called Tractatus Log- Logico-Philosophicus and it's a series of numbered bullet points. It's not a... Well, it's a tough read, I would say. It's a dense read. <laughs> Tried to get through some of it. He was very a man after our own hearts because it opened with things like the world divides into facts. The world is the totality of facts. The world is determined by facts. The facts in logical space are the world. He sort of should be our mascot. Wow. But yeah. then he, he wrote this thing uh, with some impenetrable bullet points in it. And then he believed that Tractatus had cleared up all the confusions that had tormented philosophy until that point. And so he decided it was never necessary to write again. And that was when he disappeared <laughs> off to the Alps after wow. the First World War. He's like, I've solved philosophy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Game about over. these doors. <laughs> <laughs> You're well, welcome. He... Although then he decided against that and I think went back to it by 1929 and wrote his other great work. So he, he initially studied at Cambridge, uh, as James said, under Bertrand Russell. And uh, when he arrived there, he he seemed like a bit of a cocky dick when it came to uh, philosophies. Like, as in, I'm surprised Russell didn't go, get out of here at some of the stuff he did. I read an obituary that Russell wrote about him, and he describes his first encounter. And he says, he maintained, for example, at one time that all existential propositions are meaningless This was in a lecture room, and I invited him to consider the proposition there is no hippopotamus in this room at present. When he refused to believe this, I looked under all the desks without finding one, but he remained unconvinced. (laughs) I mean, if I tried pull that on you guys, you'd kick me out of the room, right? It's true. Like, it was, do you remember that time you tried to convince us that triangles and rectangles were the same thing? Uh, that's true. I've still got a job. Yeah, maybe. maybe <laughs> they, um, isn't there a story about Wittgenstein and Russell? I might be wrong about this because I haven't written it down, but yeah. did he not go to Cambridge and Russell said, tell me why I should take you on as a student? And he gave him a piece of paper with one sentence or one word written on it or something. And Russell looked at it and then kind of threw it away, but gave him the job. 
based on that and we no one knows what was on that piece of paper i think that's true wow that's that's the story yeah it's i only probably know a drawing um, of a door handle or something <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that is the story. I don't know if it's yeah. apocryphal, but um, sounds it. Doesn't yeah, it? he had such a full life. It's amazing. I mean, he fought in the First World War, which we haven't even mentioned, um, as I guess loads of men of that age had done. He also had been an engineer before being a philosopher. So he built an aeronautical engine, um, which actually proved useful when helicopters were being designed later on. As in, this is a really, really, really full life he had. Yeah, and he was a. Genius, but he's basically the philosopher's philosopher, isn't he? Like all other philosophers said, this is the smartest guy you've ever met, guys. Mm. So maybe he was justified yeah. in that arrogance. But he, in his yeah. lectures, he used to throw students out when they didn't insult him, basically. So he, if, if students didn't ask him pertinent questions or <laughs> lay into him about his arguments, he'd kick them out of the lectures. And at one point, there was just one person left in his lecture at the end because he'd kicked everyone else out for being too stupid <laughs> and accepting. Wow. And that was actually a guy called Francis Skinner, with whom he planned to emigrate to the Soviet Union in 1934. He wanted to become a manual labourer. What? And he, in <laughs> fact, visited the Soviet Union to kind of do a recce of it and be like, is this place good for manual labour? And he came back and decided against it. <laughs> As I think you would if you were considering manual labour in the USSR in 1934. There's another reason why he was um, a man after our own hearts, I think, um, because one of his famous things that he wrote was, if a lion could speak, we would not be able to understand him. And what he means by that, basically, is that you can translate one human language to another human language, and that's fine, because we've all mm. had the same kind of life, we all have the same experiences, we all mm. feel the same, we all smell the same, we all see the same. And so it's easy to translate those words to other words. But with lions, we just do not know what it's like being a lion. And if they could tell us stuff, we just wouldn't understand a single thing they were saying. And it was a point he was making about language. Um, but it's the point that I always make, that a lion doesn't even know it's a lion. Mm. <laughs> Don't try and pass yourself off as the heir to the greatest <laughs> philosopher of the 20th century. We see, we see you. <laughs> can, can we talk a bit about his family as Ooh, well? Yes. So yeah. I'm sure you guys came across this book, The House of Wittgenstein, which is a, a book about the entire clan. Uh, and it sounds insane. I mean, the book sounds remarkable, but the family also, they were dreadfully unhappy as people. So he was one of five brothers, three of whom took their own lives and the other two of whom seriously considered it. So the two brothers who who didn't were Ludwig and Paul. And um, Paul was an amazing, he was a pianist uh, who lost an arm during the First World War, but stayed as a pianist, um, a one-armed pianist. And he commissioned one-handed works from lots and lots of composers. So Strauss, uh, Prokofiev, Britton, Ravel, which could have been a really nice tool for mm. other pianists with one arm. But he declined permission to other one-armed pianists <laughs> to actually play the pieces. This is the worst what? thing. Even if he couldn't play them himself because he found them difficult, he would not let other people have a go. He wrote back to Prokofiev, thank you for your concerto, but I do not understand a single note and I shall not play it. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> But he was, because they came from a rich family, they were all kind of spoiled brats in a way, except Wittgenstein, who it seems eschewed all that. So Paul eventually had to flee to America because he'd impregnated this woman uh, in their first piano lesson, in fact, that he was giving her. And so he fled to America. Sorry, during the first piano <laughs> lesson, he got her pregnant. He should have been just practising his fingering. <laughs> <laughs> They play the piano differently then. I had so many piano lessons. And not <laughs> once did you get pregnant. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> um, so he, he impregnated this student, fled to America, and he didn't have a valet once he was in America, which he wasn't used to. He didn't know how to live without that. So, for instance, he was staying in a hotel and he just uh, took off all his clothes and left them outside the door of the hotel, assuming that a valet would come and wash them and return them to him, and they all got stolen. <laughs> And so Wait, surely outside the door of his room, not outside the door of the hotel. <laughs> it was outside the door of his room. <laughs> Can Sorry, I also right. say, if he decided he wanted to get his clothes washed by a hotel every single time, then he would have lost the entire family fortune within <laughs> about three weeks, if your experience is anything to go by, Anna. Yeah, L look, let's not go, let's not revisit my hotel bill from our US tour last year. <laughs> uh, it is a great way to lose your entire Sole family fortune. Sole reason the tour lost money. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, but he sat around wearing bed sheets. He just wore a sheet over himself until no. someone eventually sort of heard oh, about wow. it and said, "Show me to be your PA because it seems you don't know how to live in the world." Oh, wow. And she was hired. And there was another oh. anecdote about him walking out into the street and someone had given him a hat and he was wearing the hat, but it was still attached to its hat box because <laughs> he didn't know, I guess, how to put on his own hat. Wow, that is posh. Uh, what about Gretel? We mentioned her earlier, who was the person who bought the house which Wittgenstein um, designed. Um, so she found is... it by following a trail of sweets to the door, didn't she? <laughs> <laughs> so Gretel was the subject of a portrait by Gustav Klimt. And, you know, Klimt, one of the greatest artists of the early 20th century, uh, but she just hated it. And so she just kept it in her attic. Wow. I mean, wow. you know, fancy having your portrait drawn by Klimt and then just thinking, nah, I don't like yeah. it very much. Have we, do, have we, is it out of the attic yet? Do we know what it's like? Maybe he was having a really bad day. No, it's good. I think it's good. I mean, she has quite a long neck in it, but you know, <laughs> that it not, might be. What, not Medidliani long. It's just like it's slightly longer yeah. than a normal person's neck. She's still, she's still fitting okay. into, onto the canvas, right? She's still, yeah. It's not such a long <laughs> neck that she had to chop off the top of her head. She had to chop off the hat box at the top. <laughs> <laughs> Is she it wasn't right very nice, I don't think. Well, she was a bit of a Nazi, wasn't she? In fact, both the sisters were a bit had Nazi tendencies, okay. and in fact, sided with the fascists against Paul uh, and gave away a lot of their fortune to the Nazis. Gosh. And they all kind of hated oh. each other. The siblings they ended up variously estranged from each other, as well as all sort of committing suicide. It's a very um, sad family. There was a lot of uh, obviously there was a lot of Nazism about at the time. Ludwig was actually a <laughs> classmate of Adolf Hitler's. No. Oh, yeah. no way. Yeah. Was he? Wow. He was. They were at the same age and they were at the same school, but Wittgenstein was put forward a year and Hitler was taken back a year. Ah. Oh. Dodged a bullet. So... Hitler was taken okay. back a year? Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. So they ended up two years apart. Yeah, exactly, even though they're the same So they age. probably wouldn't have known each other. No, they knew each Not other. It was a small school. Small schools. So oh, okay. That's embarrassing for Hitler. Wow. That's like Dom Jolly and Osama Bin Laden. Yeah. Uh, they were at the same sorry? school. Dom Jolly and Osama Bin Laden went to the same school. Yeah, they went to the same school. I can see that you're kind of putting Osama bin Laden and Hitler in the same bracket, but Don Jolly and Ludwig Wittgenstein, I'm not... <laughs> okay. I mean, he's a great comedian, but... Trigger Happy TV yeah. is the Tractatus Logico yeah. Philosophicus of its day, in my opinion. He was another one who um, recorded when he masturbated. Oh, good. Yeah, Wittgenstein. Well, it's before, I think, but yeah. yeah. Who, who did we mention had done it in a previous Ooh. episode? Was it Hook? Robert Hook? Robert Hook. Yes, it that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but Wittgenstein continued that tradition and he wrote in his diary during World War One. He would write in his diary when he'd masturbated. And actually, this is a... I couldn't find a verification of this except in a Slavoj Žižek book, but I think we trust him. And he said that Wittgenstein used to get annoyed because his fantasies while he was masturbating kept on being plagued by maths problems. And he found this very annoying and distracting. I, th I think it's a problem that we've all he had. Wouldn't be, he wouldn't be the first person to be thinking about an ex. <laughs> very strong. Wonderful. Okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is Andy. My fact is that in 1801, England had a celebrity ox which had its own coach and horses. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> yeah. So um, this is from a great book called Jane Austen's Country Life by Deirdre Le Fay, which is all about life in rural England in the, in the early 19th century. Um, and there was this ox which had been bred by a man called Charles Colling of Ketton Hall uh, in Durham. And um, it was uh, known as the Ketton Ox at first, and then it was renamed, so it became the, the Durham Ox. And um, Colling was interested in cattle breeding, and he was one of the pioneers of breeding animals to make them really, really big. And the Durham Ox was a huge success, and I mean that in every sense. Um, it was reported as being between 170 stone and 270 stone. The stones weren't standardised at the time, but it was well over a thousand kilos this uh this bull and um it's about four times the size of a modern cow basically it was really big it was impressive it yeah. sounds impressive because cows are and big already they're quite cows big, are big. Mm. they are there was it's interesting because now there's a lot of pressure on celebrities to lose weight but it sounds like back in the day there was a lot of pressure on celebrities to be as heavy as possible that's very so that's true. that's something that's changed, as well as the fact that celebrities that... put cows back in <laughs> <laughs> Can I just say a fact about a celebrity animal? Because I was going to do this as my fact next week, but I think I'll say it now anyway to see what happens. Okay. 
in the third series of French Big Brother, uh, one of the housemates was a dog. <laughs> really? <laughs> and it was a dog called Saucisse. And part of the rules were you had to have a secret and all the other housemates had to work out what your secret was. <laughs> and Saucisse's secret was that he once ran for the mayor of Marseille. <laughs> <laughs> it's and not did you spill it on the first day? <laughs> did, so they have to, did they have to work out what the secret was, did you say? Yeah, they had to work that out is, each other's secrets. That is absolutely impossible to work out <laughs> from what the dog's giving you. It's, it's I know brought... what you mean, but Saucisse, the dog, doesn't really have an ability to form complex thoughts, so he's also at a disadvantage. Well, it's like Wittgenstein said. He said, if Saucy's the dog could talk, we wouldn't understand his platform to be the mayor of Marseille. <laughs> Sorry, Andy. We should talk about the ox. Sorry. No, actually, genuinely, I, I'm quite interested in talking more about Saucy's. <laughs> Where did he place? Where did he place in the, I think, in the final? I can't remember. I haven't done the research on it because it isn't one of my facts yet for yeah, the show. But, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, this now comparatively dull ox, which <laughs> never, as far as I can tell, ran for elected office anywhere. Lazy. Um, but it was it was bought by a man called John Day for a couple of hundred quid. And um, it had a special carriage uh, and it was pulled around by four horses. <coughs> it toured England and Scotland for five years. It played... 200 different venues across the UK. Amazing. Many more gigs than we have done as a podcast, put it that way. It played international gigs as well. It played Madison Square Garden. Yeah, come on. Which it did. It It played Madison Square Garden. Okay, so a couple of weeks ago. Hang on. I've I've mixed up my famous celebrity oxes. Uh, Yeah. It was a different ox. Very sorry. Back out on that one. Okay. I can't wait to hear about this other celebrity ox. (laughs) That's that's a spoiler for later in the show. Yeah. Um, it wasn't just size that it was renowned for. You can't just be big. It was also symmetry, ah. apparently. Mm. They're the two attributes. If you look at news articles from the time, it's always about its size and its symmetry. So you had to be you had to be balanced on each side. And it was uh, bulls would be advertised as having been sired by the Durham ox, wouldn't they? And there was sort of like a type of ox that was called Durham ox after this. Yeah. He was so famous that he became his own... So breed, I suppose. Well, do you know about the breeding of yeah. his parentage? It's Please tell us. It's very incest heavy. This mm-hmm. honestly makes okay. Game of Thrones look like Rosie and Jim. So <laughs> there was a bull called Favourite who was bred with his own mother. His mother was called Phoenix. They produced a cow who was called Young Phoenix. So Favourite had been bred with his own mum to produce his daughter slash sister, Young Phoenix. But then Favourite was bred with his own daughter slash sister, Young Phoenix to produce the Durham Ox. So as far as I can tell, the Durham Ox's dad was his grandfather and his mum was his half-sister. Yeah. Or you could say that young Phoenix was simultaneously favourite's daughter, sister and sexual partner. Oh, boy. <laughs> nice. Well, it saves on giving presents at Christmas time, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> what are you going to get? Your daughter, sister, mum and sexual partner. Probably just get her a necklace. <laughs> it works, the inbreeding. I mean, if you if what you're going for is massive cow, then it did well. You didn't want to get any genes involved that were inferior. True. And I think it was pioneered first by a guy called Robert Bakewell, who was this massive uh, guy in the agricultural <laughs> revolution who sort of made all his cows chag each other within their own families and he revolutionized selective breeding really and darwin cited him quite a lot and he was incredible at building cows to the ideal size and shape <laughs> um the Durhamox has an entire town in australia named after it it's wow. called Durhamox. it's got 74 people living there and um, I went on the Australia's Guide website, which says there is one thing to do within 20 kilometres, and that thing is a jumper shop. Hmm. So it's quiet. Did you say there. a jumper shop? Yeah. As in a shop that sells jumpers. Sorry, I, yeah. I misunderstood that's the, that. ne- the jumper shop is the nearest local attraction. Um, okay. But it's the safest place to live in the state of Victoria. So okay. in 2015, new- the news reported that there had been just seven crimes in five years. Wow. Okay. This is how it broke down. Jumper 2014. There was no jumper theft as far as I can tell. Um, 2014, there was an arson thing. Okay. That was quite a serious crime. 2013, yeah. no crimes. 2012, no crimes. 2011, uh, there was one drug offense. But in 2010, there was an abduction, 
That was arson. <laughs> that was a weapon and explosives offence. And there were two counts of disorderly and offensive conduct. It sounds like the biggest wow. year in Durham Ops's history ever. <laughs> but, wow. but wait, was, was that all one event? Kind of like, this is my sister lover and... <laughs> <laughs> Didn't mention any incest-related uh, crimes, but... <laughs> there is... Yeah. Um, do you know what the second most safe place in Victoria is? <laughs> no. <laughs> I thought no, I might as well check it out. You really go the extra mile. <laughs> <laughs> this is brilliant. So this is a place called Speed. Okay. So again, they've had very, very few crimes. It's a very small place. Um, but one thing that they did used to have a problem with was speeding because um, when when you drive into speed, it's on a main road, there's a big sign that says, welcome to speed. <laughs> and people took that as an invitation and would start going really fast in the town. And so in 2011, the residents of speed started a campaign to get the name of the town changed to Speed Kills. <laughs> <laughs> and they got 32,000 likes on Facebook to try and get their um, name changed. And they, in the end, they renamed the town for one month to Speed Kills. And as part of the campaign, as part of the campaign, there was a local farmer called Phil Down, and he changed his name to Phil Slowdown. <laughs> <laughs> no. And that's the second oh. safest place in Victoria. Um, Durham Ox had a sort of quite sad end in a way well it died it, yeah yeah so it dislocated um its hip uh, while being led out of the carriage the famous carriage that we've spoken about uh, while in oxford and it had to be slaughtered two months later but day ever the showman turned that into an event itself and i believe correct me if i'm wrong guys there was an autopsy which was sort of shown to the public on the day uh, that it had died and I think as, they might have yep. shown, you might have been able to buy a ticket to watch it die, basically. To watch it yeah. die, yeah. yeah. And, but then it was, yeah, and then it was chopped up. And part of the merch stand that he set up was selling offcuts oh, no. of the Durham Ox. Yeah. I don't think that's cool. When you go to a butcher, I don't think you say, you know, can you go to a merch stand over there and get a leg of lamb, please? <laughs> <laughs> it's not branded. <laughs> Well, it could be branded if it's a Some cow, it I guess. Be, yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, I found another famous ox, actually a couple of famous oxes, and this was over in America. There was two oxen called Mount Cotardin and A. Granger, named I after the two biggest things. <laughs> Sorry? Does anyone else feel a Madison Square <laughs> I'm excited. I'm really excited to know what kind of venue they might have played. <laughs> so they were named after the two largest items in Maine at the time. That's where they got their names from. And um, they were humongous. They were supposedly, I, I can't find anything to uh, contradict this, the biggest and tallest oxen, respectively, that the world has ever seen. Wow. So Mount Katahdin weighed two and a half tons. Wow. So they they were tall, they were wide, and they were celebrities. And they went around and they did a lot of gigs and eventually... They played Madison Square Garden. No, no. no. Yeah. oh my god, yeah, Madison Square Garden. So, which um, um, yeah. we said a couple of weeks ago when Sarah was here, Sarah Pascoe, that um, or you said I think that was it. Emmeline Pankhurst played Madison Square Garden, right. and she had a crowd of three thousand in a nineteen thousand seater stadium. Do you know yeah. how many people went to see the um, yeah. the oxen? Actually, I assumed that it was the current Madison Square Garden with the ginormous 18,000 capacity. But actually, it turns out that it's been rebuilt a few times. And oh, she actually yeah. played the second iteration of the Madison Square Garden, which had a capacity of 8,000 people. Mm. So she still was kind of suffering in the sales department. She only sold 3,000. That's less than 50%. But it's not as great a discrepancy as 18,000. Uh, so yeah, so apologies to all the people on Twitter who've pointed this out. Very, very sorry. Um, but this is the very same Madison Square Garden, Madison Square Garden 2, where these two giant oxen played in uh, 1906. They must have somewhere a... You know how some venues uh, in the UK have a like a book for all the acts mm. that play there to sign? Yeah. Presumably somewhere in the basement of Madison Square Gardens, there is a book which has got the signature of Emily Pankhurst <laughs> and a poof print of a giant ox. <laughs> How cool, yeah. We can only assume. Yeah. We haven't actually said yeah. what an ox is. Oh. It's, uh, a, it's a castrated male cow. Um, yeah. But and they, they used to be really... 
popular uh, for farming. And they used to be way more popular as draft animals pulling plows and things uh, than horses. Um, but there were a few disadvantages and gradually they, they went out of fashion, a bit slower and a bit less versatile. One of the problems is you can't change their shoes like you can a horse. So horses stand on all four legs. Mm. Um, and and when you want to change a shoe, you can the, the horse can stand on three legs. Oh, yeah. It can cope with that. Um, and you can change a shoe and then you put that down and you change the other shoes. Oxen can't do that. They can't stand on three legs. So to put shoes on an ox, which is necessary if you're farming with them, what you have to do is you have to push it over... <laughs> onto the ground and then you have to have a basically a massive fork to to gently hold it in place by the neck and then you tie its feet together so you don't get gored a pitchfork like what a big you fork. can't put a fork yeah. in its neck around no, its it neck around. Like, oh, right, it's gone okay. either side so it's like that uh, kind of um, it's like in action films when someone always has a pitchfork kind of thrown at them and it lands on either side of their neck doesn't it's it it's exactly like oh, that oh yeah like I've in never seen that films. in an action yeah. film <laughs> Is that in Die Hard? I'm not sure. I don't really remember it. It's yeah. in one of the sequels. Um, but and th- so that's one method. You sort of, and then you, and that's pretty hardcore. You have to be pretty brave to do that. And the alternate method is to use a thing called an ox sling, which is this massive framework of beams, and you get the oxen to walk in, and then you just lift it up off the ground, oh. and you have it hovering in the air. And then you have to fit the shoes like that. So you can see why they went out of fashion. Yeah. Fun for the ox, though, the sling one. I prefer yeah. that to the lying on your back with the pitchfork around your neck and your legs tied together. <laughs> if you had the choice. Next time you're in Clark's and buy some new shoes. <laughs> <laughs> this is like Die Hard. <laughs> okay, it's time for our final fact of the show, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that the world's least frequently published newspaper is released once every four years on Leap Day. The print edition costs €4.70, or you can subscribe to it for €100 per century. (laughs) That's a cool subscription. Um, So this is La Bougie du Sapeur, which is a uh, satirical newspaper that began in 1980. Two friends decided that they wanted to do this as a thing, and they made it a reality. So the title translates as The Sapper's Candle, and it's a reference to a cartoon character who was called The Sapper Camembert, and he was born on the 29th of February. He joined the army just as he'd celebrated his fourth birthday. That's the reference to the title. But yeah, it's a it's a wonderful newspaper that is still going to this day. And it has a huge readership that just keeps growing and growing and lots of lovely little in-jokes. They have a last-minute section that they manage to squeeze in, you know, late news into it. Sometimes, obviously, if you've done the crossword, you've got to wait four years for the answers <laughs> to appear. Um, and sometimes they make the decision not to publish it until eight years later, the answers, and just keep people hanging. So... Yeah, they're they're really fun. These guys. I was surprised that they had that you could get that subscription because there was an interview with the editor in 2012 who said he had considered offering subscriptions, but it would be too difficult to find people because the likelihood is they would have moved house between publication dates. So he's obviously got a better way of tracking his his. Um, well, it's a good way. It's a good way of getting a hundred euros out of people, isn't it? Um, <laughs> um, they had a Sunday supplement in 2004, and the next one is going to be in 2032. So they kind of like do a kind of each day of the week thing, which is quite cool, I think. That's really good. And they're not working That's on this full nice. time, are they? They can't be. No, they don't. No. Once a once a every four years, they kind of meet up in a um, in a restaurant, I think, in Paris, and drink champagne and kind of come up with what funny ideas they're going to put into it. Brilliant. That's so good. Yeah. yeah. But the the editor, the current editor, has been working on it for you know over a decade at least, and certainly has right. been the editor for about three issues or so. So it's got, you know, stable staff, which is good. And it has does have a print run, I think, this year of 200,000, which is not to say that's the number that will sell, but that's that, its print run, so it's got big tickets number. on itself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's some interesting stories in this week, in this, um, not this week's, this, what do you say, quadrennial yeah. Um, yeah. edition. Uh, they talk about Brexit, of course. There is a interview with Cedric Villani, the uh, mathematician come mayoral candidate. There is a story about Maurice, um, the cockerel. Do you remember this? So they're basically talking about all the things that have happened over the last four years. And one of them was Maurice the cockerel, who became really famous because um, 
people were complaining that he was cockerelling too loud. Yeah. And um, the oh, people yeah. who lived in the countryside said, well, this is what the countryside sounds like. So if you don't like it, go back to Paris kind of thing. Uh, and they came up with a law basically protecting the sound of the French countryside. I'm sure you guys remember that story. But um, mm. I found out that since the magazine came out, Maurice died. He died in oh. June. Is there any merch that we can get hold of of Maurice's? Maybe, maybe a breast or a leg. Or... Uh, he actually, um, he died in May, uh, but it was announced in June because the owner said that what with lockdown, people already had enough to worry about without having to think about Maurice, the cockerel's death. You're right. That just would have been the cherry on the icing, wouldn't it? Damn you, 2020! <laughs> Um, so I was looking into some other uh, interesting or innovative newspapers, and I don't think we've ever said this. Quite a few newspapers used to have space that you could add your own news in. Hmm. Ah, okay. This is so cool. So the first ever evening paper was launched in 1696 by a guy called Ichabod Dorks. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> such a good name. D-A-W-K, not uh, D-O-R-K. Great either way. What a name. It's called Dork's Newsletter, was the name of it. (laughs) And and basically, there was just space so that the buyer, uh, who might be the the grocer or it might be the individual, but you could write your own news in, or you could say hello to an individual subscriber. But it's amazing that only dorks are going to be bothered to do that, right? (laughs) Wait, but what do you mean you could write a message to a subscriber? So who was was allowed to write the news in the blank bit? Anyone, anyone anyone is. But if you're the, let's say it's the the local news agent, you could say, hello, Mr. Jenkins, thought you might like to know that Maurice the Cockerel is dead, uh, (laughs) waited to tell you until now because you would have been sad. (laughs) And then you can add that in. Or as... Even as the end user of the newspaper, you can also write in it and then hand it over to your wife saying, uh, I've made you some nice pie, if you write in that bit. That's very cool. so cool. Very nice. I was reading about, it's now online, it's called The Antarctic Sun, uh, but that used to be a paper that was published um, for people who live, the scientists who live in Antarctica, Mm. and it'd be sent round to them all, and it would cover sort of relevant news to them as opposed to news from the rest of the world. So... Is there a weather report? (laughs) Getting very slightly warmer. (laughs) But um, before them, before they existed, there was another paper which was called the McMurdo News, the sort of predecessor to them. And that was then followed by the McMurdo Sometimes because... The publishing schedule was so erratic that they couldn't promise that it would always be <laughs> consistent. And that lasted from 1960 to 1980 uh, as, a, as a paper. I love Although, that. Although, did you know the McMurdo sometimes changed its name halfway through to the McMurdo sometimes? Explain that. It was the McMurdo sometimes in 1960, but it was spelled S-O-M-E-T-I-M-E-Z. And then for some reason in 1972, they decided to change the name to spell the word sometimes correctly. That's right. I don't know what happened. Maybe they got a publisher without a sense of humour. Bizarre. Um, The latest article in the what is now the Antarctic Sun, did you see what it was about? No. Well, I think, Andy, you might want to subscribe, maybe move to Antarctica, because it was called Masses of Mosses. (laughs) It was about the moss that's taking over Antarctica. Get me on a plane. Brilliant. <laughs> I imagine I that's it's... probably also covered in the docks time zone, whatever it was. <laughs> Anna, as soon as you said that, I thought, which which thing am I going to be slammed for now? Is it going to be moss or is it going to be funicular railways? Is it going to be one of the other things I've developed an unlikely crush on uh... in the last six years? And did you manage, by the time I did the big reveal, did you manage to have worked out which was more likely to exist in Antarctica? I thought there can't be many funicular in Antarctica. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that's it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we have said over the course of this podcast, you can get us on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland. James? At James Harkin. Andy? At Andrew Hunter M. And Anna? You can email podcast at qi.com. Yep, or you can go to our group account, which is at no such thing, or go to our website, no such thing as a fish.com. All of our previous episodes are up there, as well as bits of merchandise and so on. Thanks for listening, guys. We're going to be back again next week with another episode. We hope you're well. We'll see you then. Goodbye. Goodbye.